All right, sermon text today is from the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stays in the, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows that the way of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, my name's Bill Boyd, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure to be at Red Mound. Usually my wife is with me because we really enjoy coming to Red Mound. Um, But she couldn't be here tonight. We have three children, and um, anything, we blame lots of things on them. Uh, We actually have four children. One of them's gone right now to camp, so we have three at home right now. In a few days, we'll only have one at home, which will be scary. Um... This evening, I want us to look at Psalm 1, admittedly, because we just started a series on Psalm 1, so I told Will when he called, I said, okay, if I preach what I'm preaching um, at Covenant, and he said, certainly, but I do want to kind of tailor it uh, to where uh, y'all are, hopefully, and uh, we're starting a series on the Psalms for the summer, mainly because people are in and out so much that that's one of those things people can jump in and out of and not feel like they're totally lost. Uh, Psalm 1 that was just read to you, though, is, is a really particular text, and I've been, uh, it's, it's one of the few really broad texts of Scripture I actually have memorized, and it's something I've been thinking about and uh, meditating on and preaching from for years, and, and I continue to learn things uh, about it. Uh, it, it is really, it's, it's more than just a psalm. Uh, for example, uh, it's actually not a psalm. Um, psalms are songs, right? And Psalm 1 is not a song. You, you, some people would say Psalm 2 isn't either because the two of them go together. Matter of fact, historically, Psalms 1 and 2 were just kind of parts 1 and 2 of Psalm 1. They were, they're the entry point into the Psalter. One uh, rabbi noted that whenever David found a section of Psalms that he was particularly... Um, blessed by, he would start a heading with the word blessed and end that heading with the word blessed. In Psalms 1 and 2, Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man, and Psalm 2 ends with the phrase, blessed are those who take refuge in him, forming, um, you know, a nice little bookend there. All that to say, Psalms 1 and 2, they really are the doorway into the Psalter. They're not songs so much as they are commentaries on the psalms. And they give us kind of a a taste for what is to come. Not only that, though. When Jesus um, started the Sermon on the Mount, uh, perhaps his most particular uh, section of teaching that we have recorded for us in uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, It's quite possible that Jesus was doing something very similar for this reason. Um, When David or whoever it was who wrote Psalm 1, we're not entirely certain, wrote Psalm 1, the word blessed 
The Hebrew word for blessed that he used is actually not the usual word that you would use for blessed. Matter of fact, it's probably not the best translation. I only know that because I read people who know those kind of things. And a better translation would be happy or even better would be full of joy. Full of joy is the man. Well, it's the exact same word, if you translate it into Greek, that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. And I think Jesus is, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are in the background of his mind as he begins the Beatitudes. Psalm 1 and 2, this gateway to the Psalter, and the Psalter being um, really kind of a, Luther called it a Bible in miniature. A reflection on the law of God in a really, really full manner. Jesus comes along and he is presenting himself as the fulfillment of everything that's being talked about here. And he's now a prophet like David. And he's now not just one who keeps the law, he's the giver of the law. And he's, um, he's the one who's going to bring the law into its fullness so that said, it's more than um, just kind of your average, uh, not that there is any average scripture, uh, but it really is a, a particularly full part of scripture. And what I want to do uh, this evening is walk through it a little bit, just verse by verse, really word by word for a few moments, doing kind of a running commentary and then kind of flip back and make a couple of observations. I don't do that a lot in text, but this, there's so much uh, here that I don't really know what else to do, frankly. Um, And hopefully, you'll enjoy that as well. Um, I'll give you one other word of introduction here. I just came back from a camp where I speak up on Lookout Mountain each summer for about eight days training counselors. It's called Alpine Camp for Boys. There are former campers and counselors in the room right now. And uh, I have the privilege of training, uh, of teaching about 70 college guys each morning at about 6.45 in the morning um, and, you know, trying to get them awake or or keep them awake as you teach and all. One of the things I was reminded this past uh, summer was just... um, how helpful it is to spend time in the woods and how helpful it is to spend time in creation. And I think as Christians, it's a really important thing for us to do regularly. The reason I say that is the central image of this psalm is the image of a tree that's planted by streams of water. There are a lot of children, as well as a lot of adults, even in our city, who have very little experience observing the wonder of a tree, or a tree in particular planted by streams of water. And yet so much of what's communicated to us in the Bible presupposes a deep knowledge of creation. And so even a practical thing that would come from something like a psalm would maybe be that we need to go spend a little time considering trees if we're going to really appreciate And considering streams, if we're going to really appreciate this very deep and powerful message uh, and this image that's presented in Psalm 1. Let me back up here for a moment and and let's just walk through this for a few minutes and then I'll um, try to make a few points that are relevant to kind of where we live right now. The psalm begins, as I just mentioned, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now that little phrase, blessed is the man, I just told you, you could say um, happy is the man, better yet, full of joy is the man. And of course the word the man means the person, it's not just a male or a female kind of thing. There are a lot of questions though throughout history about, well, who is this really talking about? Because a lot of revered theologians like John Calvin or Martin Luther or Augustine, people like that, would tell you that first and foremost, the man being talked about here is Jesus. Luther actually said whenever we read the Psalms, we rightly interpret them only if Jesus is the one saying them, if it's his voice we're hearing, and if he is the focus of the Psalms. And that's not hard to believe here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Well, who's never done any of that? There's only one person. It's Jesus, right? That said, though, the psalm is not just about Jesus. I would argue that the psalm is about the blessed state, the joyful state uh, of walking in Christ, of, of sharing in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. And there's actually a really practical kind of daily life emphasis in this psalm. So, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Walks, stands, sits. There's something to it. Now, I don't think we should make too much of this in terms of like it being a progression, although there may be some kind of progression here, but that's, again, not all there is. But you do get this idea that, oh, blessed is the man who does not do certain things. It sounds like the law, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk a certain way, who does not stand in a certain place, who does not sit in a certain place manner. Uh, One person put it this way, blessed is the man in terms of his thinking, in terms of his behaving, and in terms of his belonging is what's being talked about here. Walking, standing, sitting. Uh, But the emphasis is not just, of course, on kind of the mode of transportation or the mode uh, of reclining. It's blessed is the man who does not walk in the councils of the wicked. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of mockers. So there's an emphasis here on where we get our advice and on what our lifestyle is and on what kind of assemblies we tend to find ourselves in. You hear that? It's very practical. Where do we get our advice? Where's the input coming the majority of the time? And not just the majority of the time, but where's the input coming that we really value? Standing in the way, you get this picture of someone kind of standing around and watching and observing and listening and being attentive and open to being approached by certain people, placing themselves in a particular way to be able to engage. And then, of course, sitting in a seat 
that's a settledness, right? But the image here is that those who are sitting in a seat, they're part of a group of people, right? And so we can ask ourselves, where do we get most of our input? Where do we kind of position ourselves on a daily basis? And what are the groups that we really desire to belong to or that we belong to and really value that belonging highly? Now, as mentioned, there could be a progression here to whereas walking in the counsel of the wicked, that's one thing, and then standing in the way of sinners, that's another thing, but then sitting in the seat of mockers, well... That's a third thing, and that's a deeper thing. I will argue that the, the psalm seems to have uh, a thrust that sitting in the seat of mar- mockers is a pretty bad place to be. But that said, I, I love, again, what one, I think it was Walter Brueggemann said, he says, what's really being described here is the various dimensions of the ways of the wicked. The various dimensions of the ways of the wicked. One of my favorite songwriters wrote a song called There's So Many Ways to Be Wicked. Um, And that's kind of what the psalmist is saying here. Look, there's a variety of ways to be wicked. There's a variety of ways to receive input that will not be helpful to you. And he's covering all those in a poetic manner here. And he says the man who's happy, the man who's joyful is the man who actually has learned, we might put it, not to walk in the counsel of the wicked and not to stand in the way of sinners and not to sit in the seat of scoffers. Let's keep going for a moment. But what? But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. So, standing, excuse me, walking, standing, sitting, and receiving counsel and kind of observing and emulating and just being a part of. Those are all things that we need to be asking questions. Where does all that occur for me? The flip side, though, is the man who is blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Well, question... What does the psalmist mean by this? Because is the psalmist saying that, you know, rather than walking, standing, and sitting, you just need to be, I don't know how, maybe sitting cross-legged, meditating on the law of the Lord, you know? In other words, you have to be walking somewhere, and you have to stand somewhere, and you have to sit somewhere. And the point of the text is actually not to remove yourself from the world. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is, is that the blessed man, the happy man, the man full of joy, is the man whose identity is not found in where he's walking from a worldly point of view or where he has positioned himself or in whatever kind of group he's a part of. His identity is found in his meditation. The word is very particular upon the law of the Lord, and in particular, his meditation on that law day and night. 
Now, there are two things about the word meditation here that are fascinating to me. One is this. It's kind of an onomatopoeia word where the word actually in Hebrew has the connotation of... I mean, it literally kind of means murmur. And we usually think of murmuring as a bad thing, right? Israel murmured, grumbled, complained, and ended up taken off by the nations of Syria and Assyria. That's not the kind of murmuring being mentioned here, though. Uh, When I was uh, a sophomore, you might say, my second year of seminary, I took four years going through seminary, I was finishing Hebrew, and I was given the option of taking a written Hebrew exam or an oral Hebrew exam. And I immediately thought, I would rather take the oral Hebrew exam. I'm really not sure why I thought that, but I thought that. And so my professor said, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to memorize the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, And then you're going to come in and you're going to say them to me and then I'm going to ask you whatever question I want to about them and you need to be able to answer it. And I said, that's scary. But I'll do it. And uh, the day after I agreed to do that, my dad called and said, hey, um, my buddy, who was this attorney uh, from uh, Washington, D.C., a Jewish attorney, actually, uh, Michael and I are going to be in northern Arkansas fishing and wondered if you could drive down. I was in St. Louis and join us. And I thought, I mean, after all, I am just memorizing. So as I fish, I could memorize, right? The funny thing about it was my fishing guide ended up being Jewish, as did my fishing partner, but I was the only one who was fluent in Hebrew at that point. And they made fun of me all the time because we would be fishing and they would turn around and look and I was back there going, uh, you know, trying to remember the Ten Commandments. I was just murmuring the whole time. And that's the idea you have here, actually, is that it's someone who, as they're doing what they're doing, there's kind of the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord is on their tongue or it's in their ears or it's on their heart in some kind of way and they're just, they're recounting it. Now that said, I don't think it's meant to be literally that way. Here's the other part of the word, though. It actually does not just mean something that you think about. Meditation, in the Hebrew sense of the word, is not just something you say or something you think. It's something that becomes a part of you by doing it. And so the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, which, by the way, there is a parallel here to what Paul says about praying without ceasing. This is probably one of the passages he has in mind when he says that. Deuteronomy 6 as well, where the law of the Lord is to be on your forehead, on your doorpost. You're to talk about it as you walk along the way, as you wake up, as you go to bed. The idea is not just that you're murmuring it or you're saying it. It's that you're enacting it. It's that you're seeking to live according to the wisdom of God. Now, I say wisdom of God here for a reason. Yes, twice it says, this man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. But I mentioned to you earlier that this psalm is technically not a psalm. Matter of fact, if you were a Hebrew scholar or if you were a biblical scholar of some kind and you were just reading through the Bible and you said, based upon what you know about the Scriptures, where would you put this text? You would put it 
in Proverbs chapters 137, 139, somewhere like that. It reads exactly like the book of Proverbs. And the reason is, it's wisdom literature. After it all, the man it's talking about is the wise man. And the emphasis here is the practical working out of the wisdom of God in daily life. Walter Brueggemann again said this. He says, what we receive from the law of the Lord, and that word law there is Torah. You've heard of the Torah. It really means instruction. Well, Brueggemann says this. This is what biblical instruction is in the Old Testament sense of the word. It's guidance from the creator as to the meaning of the creation. It's fabulous, isn't it? Guidance from the creator as to the meaning of creation. Therefore, at the beginning of the Psalms, when we read that the happy man, the joyous man, meaning not just the man who's surface happy, but the man who is at peace, the man for whom there's meaning in life, the man who has a purpose for living, is the man who is convinced that the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord, gives him the ability to navigate the various things that come to you every day. And thus, the law of the Lord in a big picture sense and also in very particular senses, meaning he has certainly scripture verses memorized and things of that nature, but he also is someone who is paying attention to who God is and how he's communicated through his law. And he recognizes that this is the creator of all things. He's revealing to us what it means to enjoy and to steward his creation. I don't know what your view of the Bible is, but I'll share this with you as an ordained minister of the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think one of the number one things I have to fight is the fleshly idea and the worldly idea and the wicked idea that the Bible is boring. And what I found is that there's something deep inside of me. I, I think it's just my fallen nature. It may be some of my background as well. I don't know. But there's something deep inside of me that says J.R.R. Tolkien is more interesting than the Bible. There's something deep inside of me that says, you know, some of the greatest novelists in the world are better writers than God was. Now, don't get me wrong. In one sense, we don't compare the two because Scripture is very unique. But the point seems to be this. The reason that the writer of Psalm 1 is giving the counsel that's being given is the writer is convinced that the law of the Lord and the word of the Lord is anything but boring. And it's also anything but impractical. It's incredibly practical. It's full of beauty and depth. And it really is something that gives us strength, that gives us joy, that gives us peace to be able to actually engage in a world full of scoffers, a world full of sinners, a world full of wicked people, for such of whom were we before the law of the Lord got a hold of us. 
The passage continues, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. Uh, This is kind of like the appropriate prosperity uh, philosophy from the Bible. Now, we could spend a long time talking about the first phrase here. He is like a tree. I mentioned it earlier. But I really, I'm going to come back to that because I really am not kidding about this. You you make fun of me later. But I, I encourage you to spend some time, especially if this summer you have a chance to go hiking or something like that. If you don't have a chance, schedule a chance. But just go reconsider trees. And what it is for the word of God to say that the man who is ultimately blessed, that the picture of the man of God who has joy and purpose and meaning and strength and wisdom, that that person is like a tree. It's a powerful statement. I told you I was just up at Alpine Camp And when you roll in the gates of Alpine Camp, on your left is a dining hall, and on your right is a a lodge and an office, and in front of the dining hall is a tulip poplar. A tulip poplar is actually not that impressive of a tree usually. Matter of fact, they fall over in storms a lot of times. There are actually a lot of them around here in Birmingham. They are cool, and they grow really tall, but this particular tulip poplar is at least 60 feet tall. It's one of the top, and it it also, it starts, it's already sitting kind of up on a little hill. And it's just by itself there. And it's one of the most amazing trees that I've ever seen anywhere. I've been to the Redwood Forest. It's kind of like the best thing we have in this part of the country, you know, compared to like the Redwoods. But you look at this tree and you think, how did that get to be? And how is it that up on top of a mountain, that tree has withstood the kind of things it's had to withstand? I have sat being able to watch that tree before when storms came in on the top of Lookout Mountain, and I thought, that tree's coming down, and I'm going to die. Like, and it just stands, and it stands, and it stands. And the image here is of a tree. Now, I don't know necessarily that the image here is necessarily of a really big tree. The image in Psalm 1 is this. It's of a tree that didn't just happen to sprout up, but it's of a tree that's planted by streams of water. I'm convinced there has to be a relationship between this and Genesis chapter 2. Because in Genesis chapter 2, after the Lord has created heaven and earth, And after we even read about man being created in the image of God in Genesis 2, we're told that he took the man and he placed him in the garden. Well, this tree is a tree that someone has placed. And they've placed it right by a water course. We're not told if it's a natural water course or if it's more of a man-made water course, but they've put it right next to a water course so that it could have all the nourishment that it needs. And the biggest thing about the tree is not the size, but it's that it yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In other words, it doesn't give way to drought. It's actually possible to be a Christian, 
and to even bear fruit and to still give way to drought. But the psalmist here wants us to know that in Christ Jesus ultimately, and as we're meditating on the law of the Lord and looking to Christ, the fulfillment of that law, that what he does is he takes us and wherever we find ourselves in the world, we can be certain of this. It's where he's planted us. And through the gospel streams of living water, we are able to bear fruit and not just bear fruit, but to persevere in the doing of such. I know that some of you doubt that. And some of you right now may even in your life be thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm going to really make it through this thing called the Christian life. And I want to encourage you is that what Psalm is, is not a challenge to you. It's a promise to you. It's not a threat to you. It's an encouragement to you. What the Psalm is really saying to us is that in a world like ours, where there's a great deal of counsel that's given by the wicked and sinners and scoffers, a great deal of sarcasm, a great deal of irony, a great deal of, you know, indifference, there's actually a way that allows you to be rooted, fruitful, and immovable. Let's put it a different way. Nothing is better than a city full of trees. Nothing. As part of the people of God, you're a tree. And wherever you are, in as much as you're meditating on the living waters of Jesus Christ, God is able to make you a place of shade for people who need it. God is able to make you a bearer of fruit for people who are hungry and don't even know it, or people who need nourishment and don't know where to find it, or feel like they will never be able to find it. And not only that, no matter how difficult the situation is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit alone, has the ability to sustain you so that your leaf will, will not wither. Not because of you, but because of the one who planted you and is tending you. And the one who is the source of that stream of water from which you provide, uh, find your nourishment. In all that he does, he prospers. I'll just say this about that phrase. Don't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out whether or not you're prospering in all you're doing. Just trust that this picture of the man who is seeking to meditate on, rest on, walk in the ways, the instruction, the gospel of the Lord, this is what he's doing in you whether you see it or not. Finally, we're told this, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You and I live in a time where we don't hear a whole lot about hell. And we don't hear a whole lot about differentiation, really. If there's something this psalm does, it's that it, it, it differentiates. And matter of fact, the differentiation is just stark. Uh, to be lighthearted about it, I would say it reminds me of Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just isn't the same. You know, it does not belong. But think about the differentiation being made here, the comparison, if you could call it that. A tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruits in season and does not wither, and the husk of grain that when the grain is tossed into the air, even the slightest breeze blows it away. It makes the imagery about the tree all the more powerful because you realize that what the Lord is saying is meditating on the things of the world, feeding upon the things of this earth, making goals according to this life alone and its ways, it's the path to weightlessness. Matter of fact, you've heard the term used before, someone's a lightweight and it's not a compliment. What's being said here is that those who deny the word of the Lord end up being so such lightweights at the end that they are blown away by just the least thing and gone. I want to encourage you and I want to challenge and kind of warn us all. We live in a really interesting time. I have to have a discussion with one of my children for the umpteenth time again um, about how this summer we're going to handle screens. Because one of my children in particular just is addicted to screens. Every screen of every kind. And one of the reasons is this particular child is really good with them. But I recognize more and more that we live at a time where if you're not careful, you can receive so much input without even trying from sources that you, had, you didn't even choose. You don't even know where it came from. That you could in essence find yourself walking, standing, and sitting in a stream of information literally your entire life and never really be aware of it. I think it's part of what 
the book of Revelation is pointing to sometimes when it talks about uh, the mark of the beast, which is just a really um, dark way of saying the way of the world. And saying that if we're going to stand out from the world, if our lives are not going to be characterized by walking, standing, sitting in the ways of the world, you're going to feel a little weird, right? And what the psalmist is saying in a very encouraging way is, stop, be deliberate, and think about what is it that's really shaping your mind? What is it on a daily basis that's really shaping your heart? What is it that's shaping your hopes and your dreams? Now, in my congregation, we have a lot of retirees, and I'll admit, I was a little bit hard on them this morning. But I wanted to speak honestly, and so this is what I said to them, because I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say something different to you. I said, look, in our time, you may feel like that you just kind of are irresponsible and cannot navigate daily life unless you're up on the news. Now, more and more, I have no idea what the word the news, you know, the phrase the news means. I keep looking for news, and every time I really make a concerted effort to look for a good news outlet, I just get frustrated, you know? And furthermore, I end up, like, reading some stupid story. This morning I was looking for it and ended up watching a video about sharks uh, feeding on a whale in uh, Australia. That's what happens when you look for news. And, uh, but I told him this. I said, here's the deal. Be very, very careful. Because if the primary input into your head is from Fox News, you might as well just meditate on the National Enquirer every morning. And I don't care if it's CNN. I don't care if it's the BBC. I've tried them all. News in our time is just a word that's synonymous with gossip for the most part. I'm not saying there's no content. I am saying there's almost no content. The point is not to ignore what's going on in the world. The point is this, though. Christians throughout history are people who've had to make very deliberate decisions about where we receive input. And in our time, I think we have to be more deliberate for this reason. There is so much, and there's only a short amount of time. And so you have to be very careful about meditating on particular things, in particular the law of the Lord. The word of God, because otherwise, just simply, because there's so many other things coming at you, you'll either forget to do so or you'll be so overwhelmed, you'll be too tired. Your mind won't be able to take it. And the next thing you know, you've lost hope. The next thing you know, you've lost bearing. The next thing you know, there's a great deal of confusion. You don't even know how it happened. Does that make sense? Some people would say, well, that just means, yeah, you know, I don't know. That's that kind of nerdy Christian thing, you know? Not at all. 
This is what it is. The psalmist wants us to know that the world has a death grip on our hearts. And the law of the Lord has the ability to break the death grip. In other words, don't go out fearing things. Go out meditating on the law of the Lord knowing that it has power. One other thing I'll say to you. It's not just news outlets. I have to say this to you because of who you are. I know your demographic. We're probably on similar kind of things. I love to stay up on culture, the arts. I actually love athletics too. I'll be watching the Warriors play basketball later tonight. I love it. We do have to be careful about that kind of thing too. In other words, if the number one input into your life is Game of Thrones, that's a problem. At our church, we follow the church calendar. I think y'all do too. I realize now there's an athletic church calendar. Like it never stops. And it's all very carefully detailed and worked out because it has to do with money. And so literally in our time, every weekend there's a new something. You know, this weekend it was the French Open. Pretty soon we'll have the U.S. Open in golf. And then there'll be Wimbledon. And the Stanley Cup's going on right now as well. The NBA, there's always some big event. A good friend of mine in Austin, his wife said, you know, I figured out that about every three months, Steve has a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that he's going to take, you know? Well, you know what? More and more, there's a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing to watch every night. I'll close with this. Here's an encouraging thing, I think. Everything that's being pointed to in this passage about meditating, about resting in the law of the Lord, has to do with being a part of the congregation of the righteous there in verse 5. In other words, there's really very little in the text here that would insinuate that this is something you could do on your own. There is such a thing as personal private meditation. Do not get me wrong. There is such a thing as that. That said, the Bible never, and I mean never, emphasizes that as the main thing in a Christian's life. If anybody's ever led you to believe that, it's not true. The emphasis is on the congregation of God's people. Because we meditate on the law of the Lord best when we're with other Christians. I don't know about you, I pray a lot better with other people than I do alone. When I'm alone, my prayer life degenerates into something that would make a fifth fifth grader laugh. You know, like, we're better together. And that's part of the message here. The congregation of the righteous are those who are meditating on the law of the Lord. I want to encourage you to let this summer be an opportunity for you to maybe literally unplug a little bit and recalibrate where the input's coming from so that you can better navigate all the data that comes at you on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis. Not so that you can avoid the world or avoid reality, but so that you can actually face it and have something to say 
and have confidence and be able to see with eyes of faith how God's at work in the midst of it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for giving us time, which is such a gift, to meditate upon it together. We've heard your promise. We pray that collectively this evening we would be like this tree and that you would enable us to bear fruit together even as we go forth later. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.